0: I like some of the proposed solutions that's coming from grassroots.
1: You're listening to Making
2: Contact.
0: I'm Salima Hamarani and on today's Making Contact.
3: There was this feeling of like the police are out here and doing harm to our community. And then at the same time, our community is being harmed and the businesses and buildings that our community operates out of are being burnt down. And it's unclear who's doing that.
0: We air a George Floyd retrospective special from our friends at Yes Magazine and Public News Service. We're
4: all on a WhatsApp loop together, and during the summer, those people were meeting in a church parking lot. They set up some small working groups. One was asset mapping for the neighborhood. Another one was de-escalation training and resource sharing for the neighborhood.
0: We take a look at the spontaneous community organizing that happened in Minneapolis
5: and... We know that folks that are interested in radical imagination, reimagining public safety, aren't just thinking about what we dismantle or where we offer disinvestments from our current budgets, but are really focused on what are we building? What are we trying to replace these things with? Where are the gaps? How are we actually gonna use this process to meet community needs? We learn about participatory budgeting, where communities
0: themselves decide how public funds are spent. It's been one year since the historic uprising in Minneapolis and the shooting of George Floyd, which also occurred in the middle of a pandemic. Yes Magazine and Public News Service bring us this retrospective, George Floyd anniversary and reimagining public safety.
6: This is Reimagining a Better World, a collaboration of Yes Media and Public News Service. Each week, we focus on creative solutions emerging in communities around the country, mending historic inequities, failed systems, and addressing the toughest challenges of our time. I'm Manoa Changa.
2: And I'm Laura Rossbrow Tellum.
6: Today, we will be talking about reimagining public safety. A lot of the focus last year was on protests that arose after the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor by police in Louisville. There hasn't been as much emphasis on how communities themselves have been looking at creating alternatives and talking through what it means to keep them safe.
2: What do you think of when you hear public safety and police? Like, Noah, when was the first time you ever thought about public safety?
6: I mean, I've always grown up in Black and inner-city communities So I've always seen and noticed the police. Police are always present. Thinking about my safety, we moved to Chicago around fifth, sixth grade. And that is when I can really remember thinking about being safe. I want to say maybe it was high school. We got metal detectors my senior year, later in the year, after Columbine happening. And this is not to make light of, you know, school shootings, which are very serious issues in gun violence. But at the time, it just didn't seem like it actually had anything to do with our actual reality and actual concerns for our safety and just a response to something that happened to people in other places. There's a really rich conversation that actually does take into consideration violence that happens in different types of communities and what are some of the alternatives that need to be a part of conversations around gun violence prevention that did not exist 20 plus years ago.
2: Yeah, and it's so frustrating what you're saying about Columbine, mostly white high school, white kids who shoot up the school, right? And at that moment in time, I was in middle school and I went to a private middle school, mostly white, no metal detectors, right? Also didn't have any security that I remember at my high school. So this thing happens, totally different
6: ramifications just because I lived in
2: this higher income, mostly white community. And
6: so specifically for this conversation, there were these two issues that really resonated with me over the summertime when I was covering the protests. And I wanted to talk about block-by-block organizing and participatory budgeting, because these were two conversations, these were two opportunity points that I didn't see as many connections being made to the protesting and the work that people were doing. Because folks would focus on the protests, but you would also have people showing up virtually at city council meetings and making demands of local electeds. You also had people who were doing a form of mutual aid in the sense of helping each other out in their communities to keep each other safe. So the first thing that we're
2: going to look at is what's called block-by-block organizing or community defense. And this specifically was going on in Minneapolis during the protest this summer, and some residents wanted to create networks in their neighborhoods as alternatives to police, like without the government, without anything.
6: And there are obviously pros and cons to this, and we're going to hear more about it. And later in the episode, we're going to talk about participatory budgeting, or PB, as some folks call it, which began in Brazil in 1989. Participatory budgeting is a way for communities to have a direct say in spending priorities. So it's not just the vote yes or no on whether spending should happen or whether something should occur. It is really digging in and being a part of the process of setting the agenda. And there are thousands of cities and government institutions and agencies, including schools, across the world that have utilized this practice. Now, let's get to block-by-block organizing in Minneapolis.
2: We talked with two people who were right up in it. The first person we spoke with was Magdalena Kaluza, who's a climate organizer with the nonprofit Take Action Minnesota.
4: I live, let's see, about two blocks from the George Floyd Memorial Square, where George Floyd was murdered at the hands of the police and in a neighborhood
2: called Powderhorn Park. Magdalena, who uses they and them pronouns, says collaborating with neighbors in the summer led to people being more connected on a regular basis. We've had
4: many, many neighborhood gatherings. Many are just celebratory and relational places to get to know each other. And last night we had a solstice one in the alley. And so the alley for two blocks has been decked out with tinsel and Christmas lights. People were grilling, sharing teas, sharing bonfires, candles. And what that looks like is that we know so many more of our neighbors than we did before the uprising.
2: The uprising, of course, was the nationwide protest following the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Local Black, Indigenous, and People of Color-led groups were already organizing against police violence and responded to this crisis. Jamie Schweiz nettle co-owner of Moon Palace Books and Cafe in South Minneapolis, describes seeing the immediate aftermath unfold in real time.
3: I just ended up spending three days and nights virtually without sleeping in front of our building, on the roof of the building, just watching police shoot tear gas grenades at customers who were lined up to pick up pizzas from us that they'd ordered online or drive their cruisers at high speeds with no headlights on during the night across our lawn and seeing, you know, ultimately all the building's being burnt down, and um, it was was just, like, a pretty traumatic few nights and days.
2: People set a number of businesses on fire and burned down a police station. Jamie says it was a confusing time.
3: There was this feeling of, like, the police are out here and doing harm to our community, and then at the same time our community is being harmed and the businesses and buildings that our community operates out of are being burnt down and it's unclear who's doing that.
2: Jamie texted a friend to figure out what to do.
3: And I was like, do you know if somebody's going to be doing something to help people? Since the police have essentially evacuated the city except to shoot tear gas at us and grenades, is there anybody that's organizing some sort of way that we can actually coordinate our efforts to defend our blocks and each other. So this friend of mine was like, yeah, well, our city council person, Alondra Cano, who we both know, he's like, yeah, Alondra and I are going to have a meeting in the park. You should help us facilitate it. So
2: Jamie, along with many others, helped facilitate one of the first meetings. This gathering was at Powderhorn Park, a central point for community groups over the summer. Jimmy says it was the first time some people talked to their neighbors.
3: I got to the park and a thousand people showed up. And before the meeting started, I saw a dear old friend of mine who I've known for 20 years, who we both used to live near each other in New Orleans and kind of have already been through watching a city that we were connected to be destroyed and um it was five minutes before I was supposed to help facilitate this meeting in the park with a thousand people. My friend and I were both just fell on the ground sobbing for five minutes. And then I got up and was like, okay. <laughs> Hello.
2: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reimagining a Better World. I'm Laura Rossbrow Tellum. In this episode, we're reimagining public safety. First, we're looking at a strategy that was big in Minneapolis last summer called Block by Block Organizing, where community members protected their own neighborhoods as an alternative to the police. Magdalena, who you heard from earlier, was also at that initial gathering at Powderhorn Park.
4: There happens to be a hillside across from the stage, almost like amphitheater seating. So it was really a phenomenal space for people to gather and talk about what was happening and how we were going to
3: solve it. We just tried to figure out a way to have some kind of decentralized way that everyone could connect with their closest neighbors and also all with each other. We came up with the idea of like create sort of like a physical representation of the neighborhood in the park where we're like,
4: people who lived north of the park, went to the north end of the park, south of the park, you know, so using the park as almost a map, and then talk with their own neighbors and figure out what they wanted their solutions to be at a more specific geographic level.
3: Just trying to get a thing where people could then find a group of 10 people who lived the closest to them of anyone at the meeting. And then we were just like, talk amongst yourselves, exchange information, exchange emails, and pick a contact person and come up and come to the stage.
4: What we saw was a lot of WhatsApp loops, signal threads, An email chain set up so that people could have each other's contact info, be able to ask each other for help, and offer each other support. And we saw more communication and coordination between race and class than we normally do. There was massive mutual aid, so people were gathering baby supplies, sanitary supplies, personal protective equipment, food, tons of food, and there were so many pop-up pantries for people to access because a lot of the grocery stores in the area were closed and people couldn't. If you didn't have a car to get to the suburbs, outer ring suburbs, you couldn't get food.
3: It was a pretty amazing, decentralized way to organize people and it was a great thing that could happen quickly.
2: This decentralized aspect was a key element to organizing. Each block made its own rules.
3: There were things about it that were really challenging. Like there's some people who just like had to go check on an older relative or deliver food to someone because this was during COVID.
2: Jamie says his neighborhood is very typical for South Minneapolis. Mostly single-family homes with yards, many about 100 years old. A classic Midwestern grid layout, rectangular, with an alley between each block, detached garages. On his block, they had a few people sitting and watching throughout the night. When Jamie took a turn, he headed out with his big maglite flashlight late in the night and checked on the guards of his block.
3: One block to the north of us, however they organized it, there were just like three dad dudes standing out in the middle of the street all night with their guns strapped outside their shirts. And that was really different than what we were doing on our block. And one block to the south of us, people had just pushed giant puppets into the intersections at night. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it was like every block was really different.
2: He shared some examples of competing concerns.
3: So there were people trying to travel through the neighborhood for very legitimate, important reasons who would then come to a block where the people on the block would be shouting at them, you know, who are you? What right do you have to be here? Things like that. And um, it was really beautiful and amazing. And also there were some definitely some problems with it.
4: We're all on a WhatsApp loop together. And during the summer, those people were meeting in a church parking lot. They set up some small working groups. One was asset mapping for the neighborhood. Another one was de-escalation training and resource sharing for the neighborhood. They ended up focusing on something pretty intense. I joined this very ad hoc fire squad essentially, which I called on some friends who are firefighters and said, what are like a few basics you would say we need to know? Obviously we can't learn the extremely incredible trade of firefighting in a night or two, but what what are some things you think we need to know? Because we were seeing accelerants planted around the neighborhood. We were seeing fires popping up. And so we wanted to have a network of neighbors who were prepared to address small emergencies, at least, and predominantly for the protection of people. I was on signal threads with people coordinating supplies, and then we also had a dispatch so that we could you know, know well, there's something happening here, there's something happening there, and we could coordinate who, well, who's closest, who's able to go there, and do we need multiple cars full of people to go? How big is the emergency? Magdalena was inspired by their neighbors' resilience. At 11 p.m., I would show up at Chicago and 38th because we had been told there was an accelerant at the gas station. And there's a whole bunch of other friends and neighbors that I know from different parts of the community are also there to address the emergency. So how incredible is that too? you know, in the middle of the night in this really scary time, you come somewhere and you see that so many other people are also being courageous and stepping up for their community.
2: What you're saying in terms of you, for example, helping out, put out fires and you were talking earlier about de-escalation strategies, it's almost like you all assembled your own local government on your own. What did that feel like?
4: I'm glowing as I talk to you, I feel chills in my body remembering seeing people out on the streets meeting so many community needs. And it was thrilling and it was encouraging and it was very affirming. We know what we need and we know what our communities need. And having relationships that can weather storms, having relationships that can get through thick and thin means that we can meet those needs. That's obviously very
2: positive, but I could also imagine you being potentially pissed off like the government abandoned you.
4: I'll be honest, I think our government fails to meet community needs. I'm a firm believer that government can do more to meet human needs. I'd love to see community continue to find our own solutions. As
2: Magdalena mentioned toward the beginning, her neighborhood network is still pretty active. Jamie, the bookstore owner, his is less so. He says a bunch of people are just burnt out, but things are shifting in the city.
0: You were just listening to George Floyd Anniversary and Reimagining Public Safety, a special brought to you by our friends at Yes Magazine and Public News Service. And we just heard reporting about ad hoc community teams that help keep people safe during the George Floyd uprising in Minneapolis. There's even more coming up, but we wanted to remind you that you're listening to Making Contact. To find out more about our shows and get behind-the-scenes information, visit radioproject.org. And now, back to the show. Madam President, on behalf of the Budget Committee, I move adoption of a resolution approving the 2020 property tax levies to be paid in 2021.
2: In early December, the Minneapolis City Council unanimously approved a budget that diverts $8 million away from the police department towards violence prevention, mental health, and other services. That's about a 4% reduction from the police. Beyond Minneapolis, a number of cities around the country are reallocating some money from police departments, including Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, New York, and Austin. After the break, you'll hear about a policy-related public safety strategy. It's called participatory budgeting, where residents really shape how to spend public money.
6: Welcome back, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reimagining a Better World. I'm Anoa Changa.
2: And I'm Laura ross Tellum. In this episode, we've been reimagining public safety. Earlier in the show, we heard from two Minneapolis residents about block-by-block organizing, an alternative for policing and community safety.
6: As we continue our journey of reimagining public safety, we wanted to explore other community-centered strategies. One process we came across was participatory budgeting. With calls for reimagining municipal budgets, including defunding the police, we reached out to Sherry Davis and Cristania De Leon from the Participatory Budgeting Project to help shine some light on how this process works. All right, I'm going to hit record on my voice recorder. <clears throat> I'm ready to rock when you are. Yeah, same here. Sherry starts us off with an explanation of the basic function of participatory budgeting.
1: Participatory budgeting is a process that allows community members to directly decide how a portion of government funds, public funds, tax dollars are spent.
6: Sherry and Cristania work with governments and other groups to involve community members so they have more power to choose funding priorities.
5: What's the role and voice of community in facilitating that? Not just in testifying and saying, yes, I agree with this bill, please pass it, but in shaping the actual intervention, the purpose of the legislation and being really centered in how we message, how we advocate, what that looks like.
6: Cristania saw participatory budgeting, or as she calls it, PB, as another means of encouraging community leadership.
5: That the core of PB as a practice is community leadership that is supported by others, but is really dictated by frontline communities. And so I learned about it. I wanted to bring it to my organization. I wanted to bring it to my community.
6: And Sherry walks us through the difference between a traditional budgeting process with varying levels of community input and participatory budgeting.
1: Participatory budgeting creates an opportunity for community members really to identify, vision, radically imagine, and reckon with what they need, what has happened, and what has not happened yet that should. A lot of Chris's work right now has been talking to communities across the country to really understand how participatory budgeting can be used as a mechanism that allows community and government to break down barriers, really understand what needs are, and move away from continuing to invest in things that have proven to cause harm and instead invest in things that promote health and safety in a way that centers equity, really what community identifies as equity.
6: Sherry then describes the phases of a participatory budgeting process. Generally, here's how
1: participatory budgeting works. The first phase of PB looks like a group of folks come together to write the rules that govern the process. That group of folks is community
6: members. Sherry notes the importance of having people from marginalized communities play key roles in drafting the rules that guide the process. Once the rule book is written, we enter the next
1: phase of PB, which is idea collection. This is where community members bring forward hundreds, if not thousands, of ideas on how to spend a pot of public funds. The next phase proposal development. Then we enter this next phase. It's my personal favorite, proposal development. This is where folks take all of the ideas that came in. We vet them based on need, equity, feasibility, work alongside agency staff to understand what can really make it onto a final ballot and to vet and review every idea that came in and give folks a response.
6: Then they vote on the proposals. Sherry says participatory budgeting votes typically extend over a week or two and meet people where they are, including sometimes online. Ballots have also even gone into detention centers. The projects with the most votes
1: happen for real until that pot of funds runs out. We call that the implementation phase. And unlike some other government process, when we do the implementation phase, community has an opportunity to come along and make sure that the project has the integrity that they
6: intended from the very beginning. But Sherry says the first step to starting a participatory budgeting process is to ask for it.
1: There's a chance that it could exist in your community and needs to be strengthened. There's also a chance that it doesn't exist yet.
6: You're listening to Reimagining a Better World. We've been talking about the role of participatory budgeting in reimagining public safety. Participating in the budget process would be a game changer for some communities. It's a way to address historic disinvestment and persistent inequity. Many folks may
1: have heard this expression that folks closest to the pain or closest to an issue are gonna be closer to the solutions. And that's a big core tenet of what we're talking about with appropriate and deep community engagement that centers participatory democracy, decision-making that is equitable, significant and accessible is ensuring that folks with expertise like lived experience that have been able to be resilient, change and tap into their own radical imagination to solve problems have demonstrated some ability to have experience that we can learn from, experience that we can integrate more broadly, and experience that we should follow.
6: For Cristania, these conversations around reimagining public safety are really about investing resources that are removed from systems of harm.
5: We know that folks that are interested in radical imagination, reimagining public safety, aren't just thinking about what we dismantle or where we offer disinvestments from our current budgets, but are really focused on what are we building? What are we trying to replace these things with? Where are the gaps? How are we actually going to use this process to meet community needs? And so creating more transparency in the process, creating more community leadership and really listening and following community guidance around their demands, their agenda, their needs is a way where participatory budgeting doesn't just support in thinking about where divesting from, but really how we're investing and how the investment process is community led and community centered.
6: Cristania says this conversation can open up new ways for people to consider what safety even means.
5: If you go to communities and maybe do surveys and ask who keeps you safe, people may say, well, I guess law enforcement, I guess maybe uh, this community member or that community member. But if you ask them, what makes you feel safe? What are the things that make you feel like your community is a safe community for you? You get very different responses. You get responses that say, well, you know, having access to affordable, healthy food actually contributes to me feeling like I'm a valued member of this community, that I'm safe in this community. Having green open spaces allow me to feel safe in this community. She then notes that some
6: communities, often higher income, Feel safer and less police. She says one reason is that they are investing a smaller percentage of their budget on policing and a larger proportion on areas like education and parks. But these ratios and priorities shouldn't be exclusive to
5: wealthier areas, and participatory budgeting or PB can help. It might be mental health, it might be housing, it could be any number of things, but those are really where people are identifying their needs and are starting to think about how does divesting from systems of harm open up room to look at root causes, root causes of violence, root causes of poverty, legacies of disinvestment in community needs over time. And PB is a way for folks to identify how they want to invest those resources. The good news is that participatory
6: budgeting processes can be big or small. Cristania says PB can happen at any level within a government or community.
5: PB happens in schools. PB happens at county levels. PB happens within organizations for people who want to think about how they start to live those values.
1: It also happens worldwide. Participatory budgeting is a new concept in the United States. It's 10 years new. And yet, in the last 10 years, we've seen over 30 cities empower more than 739,000 people to directly decide how to spend over $400 million dollars in public funds. And for me, that's just a good start for what the promise of PB and participatory democracy can look like in the United States.
6: Sherry encouraged those who would like to learn more to reach out to her team at the Participatory Budgeting Project. And so there are so many opportunities for folks to learn more and build
1: together. And I think the first thing you have to do is ask some questions. The next thing you can do is reach out to us for some support. And then the third thing is just to sign on. Make a commitment that you want to build a world that is democracy beyond elections. Sign up so that we can support you in doing that. In December, Seattle cut funding to its police department
2: by 20 percent and shifted money to help fund a $30 million
6: participatory budgeting process. Since we first recorded these interviews, the country has gone through yet another series of changes, most notably the January 6th attack on the nation's capital, which added a new layer to the conversation on public safety as well as systemic racism. Now more than ever, people across the country are concerned about keeping their communities safe.
2: But what safety looks like, and how it should be invested in, depends on who you
0: ask. You were just listening to George Floyd Anniversary and Reimagining Public Safety. Again, we want to thank Yes Magazine and Public News Service for their excellent reporting. You can find more information about their work and ours on our website at radioproject.org. And that does it for today's show. We'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the anniversary of the George Floyd uprising? And what else would you like to see us cover after this momentous year? Join the conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is making underscore contact. And on Instagram, we're making contact radio projects. The Making Contact team includes Sonia Green, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.